Hello, I'm Amanda Jezik, IDSA's Senior Vice President for Public Policy and Government Relations. Welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series that aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by talking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be talking with immediate past HIVMA Chair Dr. Raj Gandhi of Harvard University and IDSA Fellow Dr. Adarsh Bimraj of the Cleveland Clinic about lessons learned regarding COVID-19 therapeutics during this pandemic. Thank you both for joining us today. Dr. Bimraj, you lead the IDSA COVID-19 Treatment Guideline Panel. Can you tell me briefly about the work of that panel over the past 20 months of the pandemic and the context behind the two papers recently published in Clinical Infectious Diseases? Thanks, Amanda. When we started this, uh, for lack of a better word, the project in March of 2020, little did I know we will be still running this ultra marathon. Again, the reason why we started at that point in time, we thought the new literature was coming at such a fast pace. There were a lot of preprints and it was possible for a frontline physician to keep abreast with the latest uh, evidence and still practice taking care of these COVID-19 patients because clinical care itself was very overwhelming. In the process over the last 20 months, as we started looking at the very sparse evidence initially, and then as the evidence started building, the trials and the groups that were doing it did an amazing job. But I think we could have done that better. Uh, Again, by us, I'm talking about the entire global scientific and healthcare community together. I think we came together in a phenomenal way, but I think if in the future, faced with a similar situation, there's certainly lessons uh, we can learn. And I don't want to underplay the phenomenal uh, achievements of all these uh, healthcare as well as the research communities. Adaptive platform trials like the WHO Solidarity or the UK's Recovery or Active within the US have generated amazing results. And again, groundbreaking research in terms of what therapies work and also not work. And that guidance was very useful for frontline clinicians, policymakers, uh, and the IDSA guidelines. But we thought we need to highlight certain aspects of what we could still do better. And that's the reason why, as a guideline panel, we wrote two papers. One paper was called Lessons Learned from COVID-19 Therapies. We want to use it as a burning platform to suggest solutions and also stimulate a constructive dialogue, not just among clinicians, but also among lawmakers, public policy experts, and and other think tanks so that we are more prepared for current as well as future epidemics. And I often uh, quote my grandmother when I went to high school, but was a wise woman. She said, the time to dig a well is not when you're thirsty. Hope healthcare providers, government agencies, lawmakers, and industry in the United States can come together to start digging the well. And when there's a next emergency so that we'll be prepared for that. Dr. Bimraj, you mentioned that we can do better, that there are lessons to be learned, and I'm sure there are many. What would you say are some of the key lessons to be learned from this experience to help us prepare for future pandemics, particularly with regard to clinical trials and development of therapeutics? There are a lot of areas that we can improve on, but out of all the potential topics related to COVID-19 treatments, which we can benefit when uh, we chose about four or five broad areas to cover in the paper that we published. One was we need to establish standardized criteria for COVID-19 clinical severity categories, uh, and also the outcomes that have been published or measured in most of the COVID-19 trials. 
I think we need to measure what genuinely matter to alleviate the suffering of the patients with COVID-19, not just what is easy to measure. There's also, and Raj and I will go back and forth and highlight these topics, the next topic in addition to outcomes and severities, we thought we need to be inclusive and include groups and populations that are more disproportionately affected by COVID-19. I'm not just talking about demographic and socioeconomic diversity, but also patients with certain kinds of comorbidities or certain types of COVID-19 disease that will most benefit from specific kinds of targeted or tailored treatments. That's the second point. And the third point is we need to establish process and standards for rapid critical review of preprints and publications, promote dissemination of accurate evidence, and prevent the spread of not just misinformation, but also disinformation. I think we needed to gain the trust of the communities that we serve. And lastly, we need to build infrastructure performing rapid trials in pandemic settings and also establishing certain minimal transparent and evidence-based standards and processes for the FDA to issue emergency use authorizations of medications during an emergency. Dr. Gandhi, the papers that you published with Dr. Bimraj discuss the issues around enrollment into clinical trials. Who should be included in these trials? I think it's fair to say that enrollment into clinical trials should reflect the population that are most affected by the disease. There's a core principle in biomedical work, which is called nothing about us without us. Uh, And that actually applies very much to COVID research and other diseases. Now we all know that historically certain populations have been underrepresented in clinical trials, particularly racial and ethnic minorities and the poor. So one feature of the of the system that we really need to focus on is developing ways to facilitate and support enrollment of people into those hardest hit communities into research. I practice at Massachusetts General Hospital. I'm within a few miles of the hardest hit area of Massachusetts, which is a a town called Chelsea. But just those few miles really made a difference in terms of access to, to treatment trials, as well as to treatments. In addition, we need to include people who are immunocompromised, pregnant, and who are children to make sure that we know the safety and efficacy of different treatments in different groups. For example, in all people with COVID, we need to know if the treatment is safe and effective, but in pregnant women, there are additional considerations around the safety to the fetus. We need trials to to be able to be done in women who are pregnant so we can really weigh the risk and benefit. It's been said many times, but children are not little adults, and we need to know if a therapy works for, for children And again, whether it is safe and whether the the risks of the treatment are outweighed by the benefits. And then the last area I really wanna highlight are immunocompromised patients. They are clearly amongst our most vulnerable populations. We know they have more severe COVID. There are reports now, well-established reports of persistent infection in immunocompromised patients, sometimes lasting months. So we need to know whether certain antivirals benefit immunocompromised people, even if those same antivirals don't help people who have a normal immune system, people who clear the virus on them by themselves. In the vaccine field, for example, we're focused appropriately on immunocompromised people, studying them, and we need to do the same for therapeutics. So Dr. Gandhi, how can we ensure that this broader and much more diverse group of people are actually included in future clinical trials? So here I'm going to make a couple of points. First, we need to locate our research sites in those hardest hit communities. I I alluded to the fact that Massachusetts General Hospital is close to one of the hardest hit areas, but it's several miles away. And we need to therefore provide support 
to overcome barriers into trial participation, including locating our research sites in the hardest hit communities, not just at Mass General, but also in Chelsea. We need to provide support to overcome barriers to trial, trial position, something as simple as transportation. We need dedicated transportation for people who are infected and infectious to come in for their treatment and trials. We, we tell people who have COVID not to take public transportation. How then are they to get to the treatment site? And we need to provide that transportation. One area I really want to focus on is primary care clinicians. Many of our uh, most vulnerable patients, those who are disenfranchised or don't have access to care, don't have access to a primary care clinician who they can trust. And they therefore don't have someone they can turn to for advice. So we need to provide healthcare professionals to counsel such patients about potentially beneficial treatments and about promising trials. Insurance concerns are a huge concern for people seeking therapy and for those considering research. They don't always know that um, research does not require um, them to, to pay for the, for the research that they're participating in and really making sure that those insurance and payment concerns are addressed upfront. And then language barriers for clinical trials, we need to provide consents in different languages. Another area that I think we could focus on to improve clinical trials is to co-localize, put in the same place our testing sites and our treatment sites. Testing and treatment are essentially like a hand in a glove. You, you need a test to do a treatment, so they should be co-localized insofar as they can. And then last but not least, to locate research sites throughout the country, not just in major academic centers, but in rural areas, in community hospitals, and in community healthcare centers. So I want to finish with my, this comment with hearkening back to what Dr. Bimraj Badadarsh said. We absolutely need to strengthen our clinical trials infrastructure before the next pandemic rather than during the pandemic. What we all faced in March 2020 was trying to really overcome some of the deficiencies of the way we do clinical trials in the midst of a pandemic. My analogy, like his grandmother's, is you want a lifeboat ready before you need it, rather than trying to find a plank to hold on to during a flood. You, you need that lifeboat kind of there before the flood, not during the flood. A strong public health infrastructure and a strong ID workforce is essential for managing a global health crisis. Any investments we make now are gonna pay immeasurable dividends and prevent massive economic loss later. And the last point I'll make is we can take again a lesson from HIV. We need to ensure global equity in treatments and vaccines. In HIV, it took some time before there was global equity in treatments. Pandemics need a global response with equity at its core. And we need to learn that lesson from HIV and really apply it forcefully to COVID, both for vaccines, but also for treatments. I just wanted to add to what Raj said. He succinctly and very eloquently covered the most relevant issues in terms of who should be recruited into the trials. But I also think like the way we have been doing these trials, uh, we've been using precision missiles like blunt instruments. What do I mean by that? The subpopulations that we select for the trials can influence outcomes. Like if you look at the recovery trial, even in patients who are critically ill and severe, if they're antibody negative, there was a slight mortality benefit by using monoclonal antibodies. But if you take all comers in hospitalized patients, monoclonal antibodies might not look that good. Same thing with uh, anti-inflammatory agents too. Patients with CRPs, maybe early in critical disease, could be probably most beneficial from tocilizumab and some of the trials. But unfortunately, the way these trials were done, 
which specific subpopulations of with uh, specific biomarkers would benefit most was not done. Uh, in addition to marginalized populations and marginalized communities, certain biologic phenotypes also need to be uh, represented in these trials or studied well. Dr. Bimraj, can you explain the difference between emergency use authorization and full approval from FDA? The FDA EUA is different from a regular drug approval by the FDA. The EUA mechanism, by definition, will lead to authorizations based on more limited evidence than a full approval. And that is necessary because especially in a pandemic or an emergency, I think we can't wait till we have all the evidence. But there should be certain minimal standards for critical appraisal of the evidence using a trusted methodology. I'm going to say great because that's what the IDSA guideline uses, but also because it's been for the last 20 years a process that is very explicit, transparent, uh, and engages all the stakeholders and is very uh, like transparent in terms of like what the methodology is. I think that was lacking at least early on during the EUA process. The hydroxychloroquine as well as the convalescent plasma EUAs uh, were probably issued too early and may have impacted recruiting patients into ongoing trials and generating the much needed evidence. Things have gotten better, but I still think we can do better. Currently, monolopavir is being considered for an EUA by the FDA. For the first time, they plan to have an advisory committee like the Vaccine Advisory Committee involving all the stakeholders, which is a great step. But I'm yet to see what the other steps are for trustworthy EUAs. Like, is there any transparency with the process as to how they will synthesize and appraise the evidence and how they're going to take all the value judgments uh, and preferences of all the stakeholders and how does it translate into an EUA? I'm hoping we can have a process like that in place for future EUAs. Maybe I'll just add, I think Molnupiravir is an excellent example because as was alluded to, there's a number of issues. One is um, making sure that it's safe. There have been discussions around um, its mechanism of action and therefore how how that informs our understanding of of its safety, and especially in in certain populations of people who were pregnant were not in the Molnupiravir study. The efficacy, I think the top line results from press releases look promising, but then who should use it? One of the issues, of course, is how to deploy a treatment for the people who will benefit the most. And, and I think that FDA is doing the right thing by having an advisory committee really come together to, to just hash out these issues ahead of time in, in the public domain so that it's a very transparent, clear process as to how the decisions are being made. That's going to be on November 30th of this year, 2021. But I think that kind of review is going to go a long way in terms of future therapeutics. Dr. Bimraj, you mentioned that the FDA will be convening its advisory committee to review an upcoming therapeutic, which is a very important step. And you talked about the need for some additional steps to strengthen the EUA process. Why is it so important that these authorization and approval processes be transparent? I can imagine how much pressure, not just internally, but externally, the FDA has in issuing these authorizations and the nature is they're emergent. But the need, they have to be transparent is one, that's how you have the trust of providers and organizations, right? Again, for me, and the second thing is the evidence is evidence. Often those value judgments by one person or the FDA might be different from another person. By teasing out those processes and making them explicit and transparent, say if a particular group has a different value judgment, and it's very easy to understand. 
And thirdly, I'm using the example of uh, remdesivir. But the FDA issued an EUA before the entire evidence was available for the public, right? including guideline committees. So I'd like to trust the FDA that they have looked at the evidence and have made the right call. But as a provider and as a guideline committee, we'd like to look at that evidence as well, and especially the details. Like when the Remdesivir EUA came out, like how long are we going to treat, which populations and all that the data or the evidence behind those uh, rationale was not was not there because the publications were not out yet. I think that's the reason, I think, presenting the entire evidence in its totality, the total body of evidence, being uh, transparent with not, that, with the, not just with the appraisal, but the value judgments that the FDA panel has made, I think will gain the trust of the communities that are following these guidelines, but will also inform us how better to take care of patients, especially when the patients quite don't fit uh, exactly the EUA, things like that, why, or, and even going to the patients and explaining that. It's not just saying, oh, this is what the FDA says, this is the evidence behind it. And I think for all that reasons, I think uh, the FDA process should be standardized, transparent, and explicit. Dr. Bimraj, can you tell us more about what your recommendations are for the requirements and standards for EUAs? In one of the articles that we have published in CID, which is FDA EUAs double-edged switch, we go into the details. So what we said is, like we approach anything else, what are the populations, what are the interventions, and what are the comparison, what are the specific outcomes that the FDA has considered? And in grade, what we do is we kind of a priori or have pre-specified critical outcomes. And again, for me, mortality is a no-brainer. Everybody thinks that is an outcome that most of us value, but there are other things which kind of measure the suffering of patients. For an example, a lot of trials looked at hospitalizations for outpatient therapies, but we often know that hospitalizations by itself can be driven by the patient's. Uh, can be driven by provider preferences, depending on what part of the world of the country they're practicing, but also crisis capacity. For instance, in Italy and Brazil and India, when uh, hospital systems were overwhelmed, a lot of these patients were managed as outpatient. doesn't mean they're any less sicker. But upfront, having such a criteria saying that, okay, this is what, that's the minimal critical measures that we need we will be able to show that these are the outcomes that are important, not just for the trials that have already been done, but also for future trials. Um, And then the next step is, okay, the FDA looked at the evidence and say, maybe there's a mortality benefit for a drug, or maybe there's a particular drug that reduces hospitalizations. Why did they think that degree of decrease in whichever outcome they are looking at is valuable, their interpretation of it, what communities, uh, what are the cost considerations, what are the equity considerations, what are the accessibility considerations, all that if that is made explicit and hopefully involving not just regulatory bodies, the FDAs, but other stakeholders, uh, including probably patients, that will be a much more robust and trustworthy process. Trials in the future should be also done in people who have breakthrough infection after vaccination. Many of the trials on which our treatment guidelines are based on were done at a time before we had widespread vaccines. I don't propose that those trials be redone. I don't think that's feasible, but I think understanding, maybe through observational data, what's happening to people with breakthrough infections would be valuable and, and, and knowing a little bit more about our treatments in the setting of breakthrough infections. And then the last point that 
that I think is worth stressing is many of the trials that were done looked at the first 28 days or so of outcomes. Some have gone out to 60 days, but we know that COVID can cause persistent symptoms in a subset of people that can last months. And so what I'd like to see is the sponsors of these trials do studies that go on beyond 28 to 60 days and, and go out in some instances, you know, out to six to 12 months to really understand does a treatment not only help prevent an acute complication, uh, hospitalization or death, but does it also help ameliorate persistent symptoms, so-called long COVID? And so I think that would be another important direction for therapies in the future. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Gandhi and Bimraj for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's website, idsociety.org, and don't forget to follow us on social media. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. I'm Amanda Jessick. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast.